straight talk is the kind of speech that is honest, it's direct, it's the kind of talk some of you very much prefer, that others of you do everything you can to avoid. Straight talk is not always necessary, or is it good? When you and an old friend get together after many years, you're not after efficiency. You know that you're more than happy to take a long and winding road in conversation. It doesn't matter if you get lost. If you have to reverse course, if you don't know where you're going, it's the long conversation, isn't it? That's the point. But then there's times when you just want the conversation to be straight. When the doctor comes in after the test, you're not looking for him or her to meander. You certainly want the doctor to explain what it all means, but you want the answer to be straight. Don't beat around the bush. Teenagers, there are times when your parents must have a straight talk with you, and you should listen when they do so. I know you think your parents need a straight talk from you, but I promise you, not long from now, you will see this the other way around. Trust me. When it comes to matters of eternal importance, we live in a world that needs far more, not less, straight talk. If if the ads that I see, if the articles in the paper that I see tell me anything, it is that the world loves very direct talk when it comes to matters of physical health and well-being, financial prospering. Tell me what I must do to live longer, be healthier, or get rich. But when it comes to matters of spiritual and eternal importance, we very much are comfortable with that being your truth, my truth. The world doesn't like talk when it, about the truth about God, and about me, and about our life before him that is in any way authoritative. It wasn't any different than the day in which Jesus lived. As the tensions between Jesus and the synagogue, Jesus and the Jews of his own day began to heighten, the religious leaders demanded from Jesus very direct, straight talk. And in today's passage, this is what they get. John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. John 10, 22 through 42. This is the New Testament. Chapter number is the big number. The verse numbers are the small numbers, if you're new to the Bible. And we've been in this gospel for a number of weeks. When we come to this chapter, Jesus has been carrying out public ministry, specifically in Jerusalem. And he's been doing this at or around Jewish feast. 
He's taught who he is, and he's done works that disclose who he is. He has declared again and again, I am this, that, or simply, I am. We saw just a few weeks ago, Jesus heals a blind man. And after that, last week, Jesus declared, I am the good shepherd. A title fraught with meaning from the Old Testament. And now today, Jesus teaches at another Jewish feast who Jesus really is. Here's what I want you to see as we go through this passage. Who Jesus really is, is perceived and gloried in only by those who are gladly under Jesus. Say that again. Who Jesus really is, is perceived, it's only perceived, and gloried in by those who are gladly under Jesus, and you could say his authority. Here's our two points. Very simple. Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God because I see some of you didn't get it. Who Jesus really is, is perceived and gloried in only by those who are gladly under Jesus. Let's look first at Jesus, the Messiah. I'm gonna begin reading in verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to, you, said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Who is Jesus? He's done great works. He's opened the eyes of the blind man. Jesus has made great claims. Before Abraham was, I am. And yet clearly there remains confusion. There remains opposition. There remains unbelief. And so in the midst of confusion, the crowd, the religious leaders want clarity. What do they want? Straight talk from Jesus. Now here in verse 22, John is taking us a few months forward from the healing of the blind man and Jesus is teaching about himself as the good shepherd. This is the feast of dedication. Uh, you actually know this better as Hanukkah. Uh, this is the festival of lights. It's not a biblically prescribed festival. It arose around 165 BC when the, when the temple was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. And so here's Jesus back in the temple. It's winter. 
Specifically, he's in the colonnade of Solomon, a place that you know from the book of Acts where teaching takes place. He's in this large outdoor area. It was open to the Gentiles. What happens there is John's interest. The Jews want Jesus to tell them plainly, verse 24, how long will you keep us in suspense? Tell us if you are the Christ. Christ is the Messiah. Now, we've been in this gospel long enough to know that they're not asking him because they're interested in true worship. They're more looking for a confession that will directly lead to his condemnation. And Jesus, we know, knows the hearts of men. What do they want? They want a Messiah who is of their own making, of their own imagination, not the actual Messiah sent into this world by the Father. I told you, and you do not believe. So consistent with this trial theme in John, Jesus is saying, I have borne witness about myself. Now he's been very careful, hasn't he, about using this word Messiah, the Christ. He said it privately to the Samaritan woman. He's been very careful about saying it publicly. He has told them clearly about his authority and his relationship to and with and from the Father. But what he's not done is foolishly entrust himself to a blind crowd that will obviously not receive him. They want a Messiah who will bring down Rome in power. Not a Messiah who confronts them in their own sin, who saves them through the weakness of the cross. Straight talk is that this is not the Messiah that the world wants, but it is the Messiah that the world needs. Crucifixion, not a conqueror. Wonderfully, I want you to see Jesus does not bend to their whims. He loves his people such that he will not give his own people in the flesh what they, what we want. He gives us what we need, such as the love and the strength and the perfection of Christ. He does say, verse 26, that the works he, do, he does in his father's name bear witness about him. So he's saying, you've seen more than enough to know who I am, to rejoice in who I am, my works have borne witness. It's not me, it's you who are guilty. Now, you know this when we have these debates about the greatest of all time, the goat, the goat in sports. So whatever side you land on, Ronaldo or Messi, Jordan or LeBron, or bear with me, Thierry Dussetois, Johnny Wilkinson, Sinson Brook, that's rugby, and I had to look that up to make sure I covered you all. And that may not even be right. Whatever side you land on, you land there because of what they've done. You try to prove who they are, in this case, the greatest of all time, by pointing to their accomplishments. Here's Jesus tying all of his messianic claims to what he's done. 
They bear witness. The signs signify. So for you who see who Jesus is, when you see the works, they're meant to make you marvel. Marvel. Your Savior, your shepherd, opens the eyes of blind people. He multiplies food because he cares for people and he feeds them. He has authority over chaotic waters to say, be still. And they're stilled. He has given life to your spiritually dead heart. Jesus did authoritative works that you as a Christian would see all of his authority, all of his works that he does in his Father's name, not just toward you for salvation, but for your glorification, and you would marvel. Once you've trusted him, once you're united to him by faith, he, now that you being in Christ, is employing all of his authority for good that you cannot possibly conceive, even as you sit there this morning. And I would say that the reason you and I don't marvel, the reason that we underestimate the present work of Christ in us and for us is that somehow we disconnect what we read of Jesus in the scriptures from the one who is presently ascended and reigning over the universe in heaven, even now. Jesus was not then, he is not now a passive Messiah. The only reason the world keeps going is because Jesus keeps working, sustaining the universe, sustaining you by the word of his power, working all things together for good for each one of you who have been called to salvation for his glorious purposes. His works, past, present, future, meant to make you believe and marvel. Not this crowd. Jesus does not ask him, why don't you discern who I am? Did you notice that? He doesn't say, why don't you believe? Remarkably, he tells them. They don't know him, but he knows them. It's not Jesus who is on trial here. They are, verse 26. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. So it's interesting. He doesn't say you do not believe, therefore you are not my sheep. That's true. He locates their unbelief in the prior reality that you're not mine. Because is the reason. It's the grounds for their unbelief. It's not the result. And that in no way diminishes their own responsibility. Uh, This is the same Jesus who marvels at unbelief after crowds see his great works. And at the same time, notice from this, Jesus is not threatened. He is not diminished by unbelief. To persevere in gospel work in the face of hard hearts, in the face of apathetic hearts, you must have a high view of the risen Christ and his power to save. The risen Christ, Jesus, has not lost one bit of his authority simply because salvation has not come to that person or to those people. Look more at Christ, look less at them. 
And I mean by that, that the more your gaze is fixed on the risen Christ, confident in who he is, as he stands and sits enthroned in heaven, the more free you are to simply be faithful. Freed from your delight or your contentment being anchored in outcomes that you rightly long for. If you gaze at Christ, you're going to see discouragements and disappointments and dark hearts in much different ways. Jesus wasn't threatened by their unbelief. He did not think his mission was failing. The unbeliever may not know Jesus, but Jesus knows them better than they know themselves. And he knows they don't hear his voice because they are not his sheep. His works bear witness to him. Why doesn't this crowd understand? Because they aren't his sheep. I just say to you as a Christian or as a missionary, this rock solid confidence that Jesus's salvation plan is never threatened, is never about to fall apart, will give you the confidence to press on and to keep going, to keep laboring in faith. Jesus is clear here with those who don't believe, but he's also clear with the sheep who do. Whatever confuses those who are his sheep, he wants them to be clear about this. You have security you cannot fathom. You cannot fathom the security you have in Christ. Jesus knows his sheep. Jesus' sheep know Jesus. His sheep hear his voice. I know them. They follow me. He's giving us the ways to discern whether we are his. Do we obey him? Do we follow him as he's spoken to us in his word? The only ones who actually follow Jesus are the ones that Jesus knows. So in one sense, ask yourself, do I know Jesus? You should ask yourself that and examine yourself. And you should also ask, Does Jesus know me savingly as one of his sheep? And when you say yes to that, that is to know a a comfort and a security and a joy and a hope, even now, that the way you're walking in the world, it, it doesn't make sense to the world, it does to Jesus. Students, whose voice are you listening to? In these years of your life, who are you following? Consider what grabs your affections, what you delight in, who or what you really love. What do you daydream about? Sheep love the voice of their shepherd. They run to it. That means all of us, if if you're one of his sheep, you delight in, you do not dread sermons. You delight in his word. You're in his word. You you know a sweet joy in Christ. Christ himself alone can give you. He has called you and you perceive him. You're under him gladly. And then look here at how Jesus uses his authority for his sheep. Verse 28, I give them eternal life, resurrection life, the life of the age to come. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I think a common temptation for Christians is to be 
very aware of what we do not have in this world, far too unaware of what we have that the world cannot touch, cannot give, cannot take away. The angels in heaven are not confused. More than that, they are astonished by the resurrection life that the risen Christ has given to each of his own sheep. They see clearly the spiritual realities of the world even now, and they marvel. By his authority, Jesus does not wish his sheep will not perish. He assures it. So Jesus' power, by his power, it means that you, Christian, have resurrection life in your mortal body that is beyond this brief life that is greater than you can fathom. That even now you enjoy this resurrection life as you know communion with the Father through the Son and the presence and the power of the Spirit. And that precious life will not be taken away. Now, a number of you have a number of times crossed the border north of here into Oman. A number of you did that this week. Every time I do that, I genuinely look at the security everywhere. That's just me. The barbed wire fences, the cameras, even that machine that you drive through on the way back. And I, it, all, it looks unbreakable to me in so many ways. I'm not trying to break the law. I just noticed this. It's striking, isn't it? The world secures what it values. Now, we do not go to the mall and take the one Durham toys out of the machines, and go store them at home in a safe. But companies and banks will spend great treasure and go to great effort to protect what they value. Honestly, some of my favorite movies are the bank heist movies, where some thieves get together and put together elaborate plots and plans to break through a vault that is seemingly impossible. And yet, as those movies demonstrate and real life demonstrates, In this world, security fails. Borders are illegally crossed. Items are smuggled. Banks are robbed. The world again and again loses what it values. Not Jesus. He will not lose one sheep. The security here of Christ's sheep. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Christ will not lose you. It's what we confessed together as a church from our statement of faith, the perseverance of the saints. Have you ever heard the phrase, once saved, always saved? It can be said so cheaply. But if someone is truly saved, they have a persevering attachment to Christ, whereby a special providence watches over your welfare. Even though you can impair your graces through sin and in other ways, he will keep you will hold you fast. He will bring you to the final day. And so the one who perseveres is the one who proves that he doesn't just profess faith, but he possesses faith. And on the other hand, the only one who perseveres is the one possessed, owned by Jesus. Hear your shepherd's voice. Jesus has you. He is not letting you go. Each one of his sheep, more secure than the most secure bank or border or anything in the world. No one will snatch you from the shepherd. 
I think if you've been following Jesus for any period of time, you know this because you can look back on your life and you can see seasons in your life in which you had strayed or things had gone in a bad way, whether through your sin or through great trial, but your shepherd behind the different means, the faithful church, the faithful pastor, the brother or sister in the Lord, his own word, he kept you. He's going to keep keeping you. He will not let your soul be lost. He will hold you fast. And what's remarkable is Jesus reveals him that the Father is with him in this mission. Verse 29, my Father who has given them to me, my Father. Christ, your good shepherd, God, your great father. Think about that. If you're in Christ, you're a gift from the father to the son. Do you think about that? Do you think of your relationship to Jesus in that way, given from the father to the son? You should. Prized possession. I mean, when I was growing up, People gave gifts, probably still do, although receipts aren't as common, but gave gifts and they'd give you a gift receipt in case you wanted to take the gift back. Jesus will never, ever give one of his sheep back. Loves every one of us. Jesus knew his sheep, came for his sheep. And what's remarkable, is it's not just Jesus, it's the Father. No one will snatch you from his hand. He says the father greater than all, meaning nothing, no one greater than the father. Nothing can break the relationship between you and Christ Jesus. I think Paul had to have been meditating on something like this and the implications of this reality when he writes in Romans 8, in praise, neither death nor life, Angels or rulers, things present or things to come, powers, height nor depth, anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Father and the Son have you and they will not lose you. And so the next time you go to the border or you go through the monotonous security at the airport, think about the security you as a Christian have in the Father and the son, more so than anything you're seeing with your own eyes. Double security, father and the son, not at cross purposes with each other, but united. Verse 30, I and the father are one. He's not saying one person. He's saying the father and the son all throughout John have been distinct, distinguished. The word was with God. The word was God. Two persons, one God. The father sends the son. He's placed his seal on the son. The son does works in the father's name. The son prays in his incarnated state to the father. The father and the son are united in their essence, united in their will, united in their actions, such that what the father does, the son does. Son does, the father does. Marvel at the works, his works to save you, his works to keep you. Oh, brother or sister in Christ, it took the triune God to save you. And the triune God brings us to glory. And the triune God is wholly committed 
to all of this. One of the enduring realities of the United Arab Emirates is unfinished buildings. The work begins, and at some point, for who knows what reason, it just stops. Uh, You know the buildings off the 311 near Ajman? They pre-exist my existence in this country. In Christ, there will be no unfinished buildings. He will finish the work. The double security of the Father and the Son means that while you may lose much in this world, maybe your money, maybe your family, maybe your reputation, you will not be lost. You will never be given back. And in eternity, when you look back, you will marvel at all the ways, some of them you know now, many of them you don't, at how the Father and the Son kept you. And you'll see his wisdom in every circumstance. Now, if you're not a Christian, I would wonder how you think about this. Uh, Most people, certainly here, think of salvation as something to be achieved, whether that's through a process or a, a path. And this is a salvation that is very different. Not one in which we are keeping the path, but being kept. So the surprise of the gospel is that God accomplishes salvation because we are simply unable to. This is the most difficult salvation and impossible salvation for humans to accomplish. And yet we were responsible to accomplish it. And so God in his grace and the mystery and the revelation of the gospel sends his son into the world for guilty, helpless sinners that he might obey on behalf of sinners. that He might live and die and render himself the guilty one under the wrath of God. He takes on human flesh and he does for sinners what we could never do for ourselves. How do we know that this sacrifice years and years and years ago was accepted? Because he was raised from the dead. One man in history has gone into the grave and come out. And so there is now no other name under heaven by which any man can be saved. And wonderfully, Jesus calls rebels to lay down your arms Turn from rebellion and trust in him. His once for all sacrifice is enough. He will give you faith and eternal life. Come to Jesus. He will keep you all your life. Do you hear his voice? Do you hear straight talk from Jesus? And will you respond? They thought they were putting Jesus on trial. They thought they were the judge. They were on trial, Jesus the judge, and they could not hear his voice. They wanted him to tell them plainly, but they were the ones guilty because they could not see plainly who Jesus was, Jesus the Messiah. But not just the Messiah, Jesus is also the Son of God. That's the second point, Jesus the Son of God. Look down at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? 
If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. You may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, Jesus, John, did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. It struck me that there just must be so few people on the planet who could, you could say about them, they picked up stones again to stone them. You, you could for Jesus. He spoke to them plainly and straightly. They did not like what he said about his works. They did not like what he said about his relationship to God, his father. He was not the kind of Messiah they were looking for. The problem was if they're going to stone him, which work will it be for? To his interlocutors who had these stones in their hands, Jesus puts them on the witness stand. I've shown you many good works. Even in saying this, he's saying clearly, you know who I am. You just don't like it. For which of these works will you stone me? Do you want to stone me for giving the blind man sight? Do you want to stone me that I raised a lame man and made him walk? Do you see what sin does to the heart? What should have made them rejoice? Caused them to pick up stones in opposition to Jesus. Jesus turns the tables on them. You tell me in a straight way. Give me a straight answer. What you'll stone me for. And to their credit, they give him one. It's not for a good work. Now stop there because you shouldn't skip that. They understood he had done some good works. He'd done astonishing works. Inexplicable from the fact of who he is and what he's done in the name of the Father. But they were refused refusing to see what it signified. Just learn from this to do whatever you can to protect your heart from being hardened. Protect it. They saw Jesus in the flesh doing this works. They were blind. That reality remains a threat to us that we should protect ourselves from. So they say, we're not going to stone you for a good work, but for blasphemy. You, a man, make yourself God. Again, this is ironic, isn't it? It's just the opposite. He, God the Son, made himself man. I mean, think of the angelic realm astonished as they see God the Son veil his flesh, taking on frail human flesh, walking around in this world. How different is this world astonished that this man would claim to be God? It is not now as it is in heaven. But it will be. These religious leaders think that they know reality authoritatively. They're blind men. Cannot see. They're the judged, not the judge. How many times has this conversation come up here? Jesus never claimed to be God. Did he really claim it? I find it fascinating that this is what's debated or disbelieved now. Do you realize it wasn't even the point of debate then? They, they make no mistake about what Jesus claims about himself. They just hated that he claimed it. 
right here. You, a man, make yourself to be God. Jesus' own answer to them is instructive in a number of ways. Let's, let's work through this. Beginning in verse 34, he asks, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. So Jesus here is going back to the Psalms. He's going to Psalm 82. Remarkable, isn't it, how Jesus just knew and could will the scriptures. In Psalm 82, it's a Psalm of Asaph, and he questions why human rulers judge unjustly and have neither knowledge or understanding. When you get to verse 6 of Psalm 82, he cries out about these human rulers. I said, you are gods. And he consoles himself that while these human rulers are gods, they, like other men, will die. And Jesus is picking up here on this word, and he's relying on the psalm, Asaph's use of the word gods, in response to this charge that they say he has blasphemed. God. Asaph called human rulers gods. Verse 35, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. Now we, we, we can't possibly skip over how high Jesus's view of scripture is here. He takes that one word, God's from Psalm 82.6, so confident is he of that one word and its full authority that he bases his argument that the scriptures cannot be broken on it. There's been a popular Bible teacher recently who has argued that Christians should stop arguing for, should stop defending the inerrancy, the infallibility, the inspiration of the scripture. Just concern yourself, he says, with the resurrection. Now, if you ask me if I side with that teacher or with Jesus, I'm siding with Jesus. Jesus's resurrection is not separated from what he taught about himself or the scriptures. It vindicates it. You cannot separate the resurrection of Jesus from everything he taught. Jesus didn't. So it's his resurrection that gives authority, that vindicates what he taught about the authority of the scriptures. There's no separating the two. So in this world, certainly here in which the scriptures are said to be corrupted or in other places distorted or disbelieved, to be irrelevant, I want you to see that the one man in history who went into the grave and came out of it staked everything on his trust, his confidence, and the authority of the scriptures. It was the Old Testament even as we're learning, beginning this morning from our brother Mark, that gives reasons for Jesus to be confident he will be resurrected. Very practically from this, do trust your Bible. All of it. Love your Bible. Read your Bible. Know your Bible. Meditate on your Bible. Be more immersed in the Bible than you are in this world. Uh, the irony, of course, is that the world is reading some kind of Bible some kind of rule, some kind of grid for faith. The question is, what is it? Is it true? Jesus is not just mastering the Bible, he's mastered by it. And it's as we're mastered by it that we learn to follow Jesus, our master, as disciples. It's, it's, it's the scriptures that led him to set his face to the cross. He trusted the scriptures. But then notice the argument he makes. If human rulers could be called gods, and in addition to that, 
Psalm 2, the son of God is referring to the Davidic heir, then how do you so readily say about me, the very one the father consecrated, set apart, commissioned, like he did Jeremiah, and sent into the world. I am blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. So I think what he's doing is he's saying, you may not agree with me, but what he's doing is making a very legal theological case that would give them pause. From his own mouth, he's, ex- he's explicitly arguing that he claimed to be the son of God. And he's saying there's warrant in the scriptures for someone to at least make this claim. How do you know it's not true of me? And yet he was the divine one sent by the father. If the scriptures call human rulers God, is it blasphemy on its face that Jesus makes this claim? Now, it would have been one thing if he'd never done the works, but testified to who he is. It's another thing altogether, verse 38, that he had. Jesus said, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. What's he saying? He's saying, look at what I've done. Look at what I do. I do the kinds of things God does. Why? Because I only do what I see the father doing. Uh, The son's works flowed from the father in the power of the spirit. The work of salvation is not a one-man show. It's a one God, three persons show. All of Christ's works are done inseparably with the Father and the Spirit. And he's saying to this Jewish crowd, whatever you think of me, look at the works. Then you'll know I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. He's reflect, uh, inviting them to reflect on what they see because the hardest thing to perceive is what is right in front of our eyes. He's saying, reflect on the scriptures, your scriptures. And what you're seeing in front of you, he's inviting you to do the same. How you interpret your circumstances and reality matters eternally. Are you doing that as if Jesus isn't who he says he is? Who Jesus is now in the universe is more certain than whatever you do or don't understand about your circumstances. He he reveals massive truth about himself that you might live faithfully in his world. What he has said is enough. Who he is is enough. Was for them. For them, Jesus is saying, are you so ignorant of the works that you cannot see? I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. I'm only doing what God does. Theologically, he's teaching slowly about the way the triune God relates to one another. Uh, This is called mutual co-inheritance. Perichoresis is the theological term for this. Each person of the Trinity is fully divine. Each person is fully in the other. And what that means is that Jesus's works are the Father's works. It also means that your salvation is not primarily Christ coming into you, but you coming into Christ spiritually through union with him by faith. So the works of the triune God are not done separably, but inseparably. Jesus here is saving us not just from wrath, from hell. He saves us to and into himself, to and into communion with God the Father, just as he is in the Father. 
So in salvation, you're not just given the life of God, you're brought into communion with the triune God. The pleasure and the joy and the fellowship of the triune God. Think of what is yours in Christ. The riches you possess in Christ. How could you ever turn back from Christ? And yet this crowd, instead of receiving this in all of its mystery, instead of responding with worship, they seek to arrest him. They're not his sheep. They don't love his authority. They want him under theirs. And yet verse 40, Jesus gets away. He crosses over the Jordan, away from Jerusalem to where John had been baptizing. This is it. He's not going back to Jerusalem for four more months. And when he goes back there, it will be on what we know as Palm Sunday. And when he returns, it will be the hour, the appointed hour in which he will lay his life down for the sheep. How different his experience was out there. Away from the temple. Notice that in those few verses, many came to him. And the many, influenced by John the Baptist, who remarkably never did a sign, but spoke truthfully about Jesus, the one who said, he must increase, I must decrease. What a contrast here between John who witnesses truthfully, who's now dead for doing so, and the religious leaders who see and hear Jesus' witness and consider it blasphemy, worthy of death. Such is the way of Jesus. Death leads to life. John has decreased into the grave. His life and witness carry on because his Lord and his witness carry on. Here's the true temple. He's gone away from the temple, but he has found his sheep. They heard his voice and many believed. Do you hear his voice? Do you perceive who he really is? Are you gladly underneath his authority, content to simply follow him, confident he will never lose you, but will bring you his precious shoe to that day when faith becomes sight forever?